All right, got your outline, uh, Hebrews chapter 8, and we're continuing uh, in the book of Hebrews. And uh, chapter uh, 7 that we covered last week, or at least most of it, uh, remember, uh, was, remember the whole the whole tenor of Hebrews is the writer is writing to Jews who are now Christians, uh, and like like any church, there's a variety of people in the audience. But his general emphasis is one encouraging them to persevere, to not um, to not abandon the faith, not abandon Christianity, and being ethnically uh, Jews who have become Christians, many, some of them, many of them, don't know the number, but the implication is that many of them were being tempted to uh, basically give up their faith and to go back and to basically go back into the Jewish system, uh, go back into being uh, maintaining the, the rituals, the laws, and essentially... Uh, turn away from the gospel, turn away from Christ, and the implications of that we discussed back in chapter 6. And So one of the key components, as we remember in the way Hebrews starts off in chapter 1, is he's talking about the superiority, the greatness uh, of Christ, that Jesus is better, he's superior, he's greater. And so as he begins in chapter 1 talking about those things, he is uh, discussing those in the sense of comparing that why would you want to go back when what Christ has accomplished, who Christ is, all these things are greater and superior than the old covenant and all the aspects under the old covenant, okay? So in that continuation... Uh, chapter 7, he talks about the superiority and greatness of uh, Christ. Uh, hey, welcome. Grab an outline back there, uh, right there on that table, a little handout. That way you will uh, can follow along. Good to have you here. And uh, so as he, uh, we looked last week at chapter 7, uh, he again shows the superiority of Christ as our high priest that God has established a, uh, a priestly line that is greater than the Levitical Aaronic priesthood, which, again, we, we spoke in uh, some detail of that after the order of Melchizedek, and won't uh, get into all that, but that's online. You can go back and uh, follow that. But chapter 8 is where we're going to come to tonight, and this uh, chapter uh, primarily, exclusively, is addressing the subject of the new covenant, the new covenant. Uh, We're going to start down in verse 6, but just by way of uh, just kind of how the chapter starts, let me uh, start out by just looking at verses 1 and 2, where he picks up again, remember, chapter headings, uh, verses, those were added uh, somewhere in the 18th century. They were not the way that they wrote, they're just, they're there for helpful uh, for us readers and references, but uh, sometimes chapter numbers and headings, like see most of your Bibles have maybe a little paragraph heading, that's not part of the original. Those are things that just help us uh, to be guided along as we read Scripture, but sometimes the downside is, is it breaks a certain 
flow of thought, and we think that, you know, he's beginning a new thought process when he's really continuing. Remember when we looked at chapter 6 about the issue of, of uh, apostasy and uh, falling away? You know, the whole thing was contingent upon making sure we were reading it in the context of what he was writing. And so here we would just want to make sure we're keeping with his flow of thought. And so as he continues uh, from chapter 7, talking about Jesus as our high priest, uh, and then he says, now... The point in what we are saying is this. Aren't you glad a preacher always says, here's the point? Because I'm wondering, what's your point? Here's the point of what we're saying is this. Uh, and this is kind of a concluding statement. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent, a picture of the, the true tabernacle that the Lord set up, not man. But the key thing is he's continuing and saying, look, Jesus is our high priest. We don't, we don't, uh, he, he, su he uh, uh, supersedes the earthly priests, okay? And uh, he's now at the right hand of the throne of majesty. So why would you want to go back to the old uh, priesthood system, the Levitical priesthood, as we, again, talked a lot about last week, uh, that just perpetuated from one generation after generation. One priest died, another one took their place, but Jesus has established an eternal priesthood. And uh, you can, uh, by way of reference, remember what he said back in verse 21 and 22 of uh, chapter 7, how he quotes from the psalm, uh, the Lord says, the Lord has sworn and not changed his mind, speaking uh, prophetically of Christ, you are a priest forever. Chapter 7, verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant, okay? So Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, so just like, uh, remember his audience, he's trying to persuade them not to go back into the old system of Judaism. I mean, culturally, they were Jews, but now they're in Christ. Now they're followers of Jesus, so he said, don't reject Christ and go back into the sacrificial system, the old, you know, the synagogue, all the law-keeping, the dietary laws, as a means of maintaining or earning righteousness with God. One, as we'll see and be reminded of, righteousness could never be attained by keeping of the law, but that's not where God is working. God is in working through the ministry that, uh, of Christ, and if you... Uh, go backwards and reject Christ, there is, no, there is no plan B. There is no alternative. So he's just encouraging them, stick with Christ. And here he's just layering uh, argument upon argument, if you will, and trying to persuade them and showing them how Jesus is better. He's superior and he's a better priest, a high priest. He's a greater priest. He has an eternal priesthood. And now when we come to the covenant, he has established or as the guarantor of, uh, as that verse in 7.22 says, of a new covenant, okay? And that's what he's going to spend his time talking about tonight. And so, naturally, uh, if you're going to make a persuasive argument, especially to people that are people of uh, the Word, uh, you know, it's, they want to know, well, where do you get this? How do you, you're trying to, you're telling me to, to abandon the priesthood, to, you know, uh, abandon all the system and, now you're telling me that 
he's established a new covenant, well, well show me where this is. And so that's where uh, he essentially uses Jeremiah chapter 31, uh, beginning around verse 31. We're not going to look at, we're only going to look at it as it in the quotation in chapter 8, but just by way of the first, uh, kind of just to set it up, verse 31 of Jeremiah 31, and, and again, we're just going to read this one verse, but there's a lot more that he quotes in chapter 8. So he says, okay, you want to know where I get this idea of the new covenant? Here it is, Jeremiah. Remember, Jeremiah was a prophet. Uh, he was a prophet of God, and he was a prophet of God to the nation of Judah in its latter years before Babylon came and, and uh, essentially wiped every, everything out and took people back uh, as exiles to Babylon, and essentially the nation of, of Israel was no more. And so Jeremiah was a prophet in the latter days of the uh, nation, the southern part, Judah. Israel uh, was, was already um, uh, destroyed by the Assyrians. And so Judah with the city of Jerusalem, and they rejected his message. And so the context of Jeremiah 31 is the Lord made it clear through the prophet that God was going to bring judgment upon the nation because of their uh, wickedness, because of their rejection of him. But in the midst of that, as God is a covenant keeper and made that unconditional covenant with Abraham, he says, but there will be a day of restoration. Yes, there will be judgment, but there will be a day of restoration. And so uh, just uh, for context's sake, I have verse 31 of Jeremiah, where the Lord says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So that is really the basis of what the writer of Hebrews talks about in chapter 8 and says, you want to know where I get this new covenant and how Jesus is the uh, guarantor or how Jesus has, has established a new covenant that is superior to the old? Well, uh, what Jesus establishes is fulfillment of what the word of the Lord says in Jeremiah 31. This is the fulfillment of what Jesus has done that is spoken of in Jeremiah 31. So the real heart of it we're going to pick up, um, let's see, we'll just uh, pick it up at verse 6 and then, uh, and then kind of break it down a little bit uh, and uh, look at it. Um, let's pick it up, verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent. Notice the language there. Remember what he's doing, much more, greater. It's much more excellent than the old. When he's talking about the old, he's talking about that old covenant under the Mosaic law that was established with Moses, that Jesus established a more excellent way than the old as the covenant he mediates is, and what's that word? Better. It is better. Why do you want to go back to the old? It's better. Why do you want to, uh, you know, why do you want to return to something that, as he'll say in verse 13, is obsolete, but the new covenant is better since it was enacted on better promises. And that's what he's going to get into a little bit and talk about how and showing how the new covenant has better promises. Verse 7, for if, this is really important here, for if that first covenant, that's that old covenant, Mosaic covenant, if it had been faultless, meaning if it had been uh, flawless, meaning if there had been really, if it would have accomplished everything that God would have wanted, 
there would have been no occasion to look for the, a second. So in other words, if the first covenant, covenant uh, could still be utilized for the purposes of God, then there wouldn't be no need for a new covenant. But he says, by implication, that it was it did he does it does have fault and and he's going to break that down in a little bit there would have been no need for a second covenant so verse 8 for he finds fault with them now there's a little there's a little discrepancy in the way people might interpret that but it's really kind of two things he finds fault with those who sought to relate to him through the law meaning that as he said in time, in, in the past that because they were disobedient, they violated the covenant. But also, remember, the covenant also, uh, there was faultiness in the covenant, not faultiness in the sense of God's grace and intent, but we'll look at it in just a minute. But remember, the law was never intended to bring righteousness to an individual. So the law was limited. That's why it necessitated a new covenant, a new agreement. So he says, for, the, for he, God finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant. And he's quoting from Jeremiah 31, 31 that we read, that I will establish a new covenant. So you want to know where, uh, what, what the reason is to uh, abandon the old and go with the new is because this is a fulfillment of prophecy. And he says... Uh, the new covenant is not like the covenant I made with their fathers on that day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. This way he says I found fault with them. They did not continue. They did not uphold their end of the covenant. God was faithful. They were faithless. Uh, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no Concern for them, declares the Lord. And then again, he's quoting from Jeremiah. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So the new covenant is better than the old. Why would you want to go back to the old? And, uh, and as verse 6 and 7, Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry now that he has brought us the new covenant. Um, and so verses 8 through 12 is where we're going to kind of spend most of our time here. And you, have, you see you have uh, three, uh, three observations there from, uh, from this passage. And again, it's not exhaustive. But the point of the passage of what he's doing, just like he's done in the past, showing the inadequacy, remember how he started chapter 1? The limitations and inadequacy of the prophets. They were messengers of God, but now God has sent not just a messenger, but he has sent Jesus who is the message. He's superior than everybody who's preceded. Jesus is superior to the angels. He's the supreme uh, uh, Godhead as Scripture tells us. He's superior to Moses. Uh, he's maybe a, Moses was a, a, a type of the one who would come, but he's superior to Moses. Back in chapter 3, 
uh, and he's showing the inadequacy of the Levitical priesthood system. Uh, they all died. Those Levitical priests had to offer sacrifices for their own sins. Jesus, who is our high priest under the order of Melchizedek that we talked about last week, he didn't have to offer sacrifices for his sin. He, he isn't going to die. Uh, he is a priest forever. He's better. It's more excellent. So continuing in that vein, the new covenant is better. It is greater. And so when he talks about the inadequacy of the old covenant, the old covenant was limited in that it could only judge and reveal sin. But the law, or the old covenant, may use those interchangeably, uh, lacked the power of the new covenant to actually bring about transformation where we were given under in Christ in the new covenant. Now, under the new covenant, God ha in Christ has given us the, or the power, the inward transforming power of the new covenant to actually change, actually be transformed from sin. The law only revealed sin. You're a sinner, and, and, uh, and here's what you got to do. Uh, there's no inward change, but the new covenant God has brought, as we'll look at these scriptures in a minute, is better because it enables us to succeed where the other one failed. The new covenant works internally. It's not just external announcement of your sin, but now Christ, now it gives us through the work of the Spirit, which is point number one, now through the work of the Spirit enables us to bring about true change and transformation. What does he say in verse 10? He says, for this is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And what does he say? I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. All right? So don't miss those three things. So how is the first promise, how is that show us the Spirit's transforming work that is a reality now in the new covenant. In the old covenant, God gave the people his law, but that law did not give them the ability to, uh, to receive it internally, love it, or keep its demands. There was a constant need of, of the covering of the sacrifice perpetually for their sin. It actually never brought any transformation to the human heart. Romans chapter, I don't think I put it in there, but Romans 8.3 says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Paul would say later in Galatians that if there could be a law that could brought salvation, God would have, God would have made it. But that was impossible. So how do we see the Spirit's transforming work uh, in that he says, I will put my laws into their minds. We'll just take that first statement. The others will break down. But he says in verse 10, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I think I have 2 Corinthians on your outline there. And this to me is a good, good, uh, uh, a good commentary on this part. Do you see 2 Corinthians chapter 3 there in your outline? Listen to what Paul says. And with this in mind, of the work of the Spirit under the new covenant. And you shall show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with 
the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, kind of a, uh, an allusion to the law, but on tablets of human hearts. So God is now under this new covenant, the work that God is doing and is transforming is an inside work, is an inside job of the human heart. Let me read that again. And you shall show that you, and this is on your outline, and you shall show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart, that I will uh, put my laws into their minds, write them on their hearts, the promise says. Verse 4, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God, who has made us, what does it say? Verse 6, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a what? What does it say on your outline? Ministers of a new covenant. There it is. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So how, how is God... Under the new covenant, how is he going to fulfill this promise, this covenantal promise of verse 10, where he says, and going back to Jeremiah, that I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, but it's a work of the Holy Spirit that is doing this transforming work in our hearts. Now, when I was uh, re, uh, studying that, I was thinking of something that, uh, and some of you are familiar with this book. Uh, Jim, you familiar with this book? You've ever heard that book before? But if you've been in Transformation, it's the book on the New Covenant by Malcolm Smith. And um, this is in chapter 13. I want to read, it's a little long, a little longer than I would have copied, but I think what he says uh, is very pertinent with point number one here. And I want to just read it, so don't zone out on me, okay? Uh, so just listen as I read. It's not, I'm not reading the whole book, but just listen to what he says. In light of this transforming work of the Holy Spirit as part of the better promise given to us now and as, a, as the work of the Spirit. All right, Listen to what uh, Malcolm Smith says in his book, The Lost Secret of the New Covenant. In understanding the covenant, there are two phases that are of supreme importance. The first is the expression, quote, in Christ. It is a phrase that indicates that we are vitally in and part of the historical events that took place. And it is a phrase that indicates that by the Holy Spirit, we have actually been joined and made one with Christ. So that His history has become our history. In Christ, an important phrase and term. We are vitally one with Him in all that He has accomplished and all that He is now in the heavens. But he says there's a second phrase that we find throughout the New Testament, and it's this, quote-unquote, in the Spirit. The first one was in Christ, but the second one, he says, that we find throughout the New Testament is in the Spirit. It indicates the dynamic experience of the power of the Spirit actually joining us to Christ and His work and making it real in our lives. That's part of verse 10. What originated in eternity in the loving heart of God the Father was affected in history by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ the Son and is received and experienced by the people of God through the work of the Holy Spirit. 
The problem in the church today is that we tend to focus on one of the phrases, one of those two phrases, in Christ or in the Spirit, to the exclusion of the other. On the one hand, the work of Christ is studied objectively out there in history with little or no sense of the Spirit's making that work effective in our lives today. On the other hand, many are fascinated by the Spirit's power with little or no interest in understanding what happened in the historical work of Christ in His making the new covenant. The two phrases belong together, in Christ, in the Spirit. The Spirit is the presence of our covenant God. Let me read that again. The Spirit is the presence of our covenant God in power, making real and vital in us all that has been accomplished by Christ. That's what we're talking about in verse 10. I cannot emphasize strongly enough the place of the Spirit in the covenant. Apart from the Holy Spirit, there is no new covenant. The lifestyle of the men and women in the new covenant is that of loving even as they are loved by God. That is an impossible goal apart from the work of the Spirit. The supernatural gifts of the Spirit are part of the dynamic of the covenant people and are totally the work of the Spirit. The old covenant that Israel lived under was one of shadows, promises, and hope. The new covenant, called a better covenant, is founded on the work of the Lord Jesus and is primarily... (coughs) The covenant of fulfillment, of power in which God and His people are dynamically joined as one in the work of the Spirit. Just a little more. The covenant seeks for union of two parties. Something that the old covenant, although revealing the presence of God dwelling in the people's midst in a very real way, could ultimately only point to, anticipate, and wait for. That's what saying the limitations it could just hey there it is but it didn't really do anything it didn't change us ezekiel saw clearly that the holy spirit living within the believer would accomplish this union he looked for the day when god would dwell not merely with but within his people and i'm going to quote from ezekiel 36 25 and 27 and it parallels what jeremiah the word of the lord this is from Ezekiel 36, 25 and 27, or 25 through 27. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you prophetically, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. See, the law couldn't cause you to do anything. But the new covenant, and here's this aspect of the promise in Ezekiel, he says, I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a new heart. I will put my spirit within you, not just make you a giddy, spirited person. He said, I'm going to put my very presence within you and cause you, the Holy Spirit, and cause you, enable you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. That's a great promise. He ain't just going to tell us and be frustrated with 
his standard and we can never do anything about it. He's actually saying, I'm going to enable you. This is why the new covenant is better. Better. I'm going to enable you to do what you can't do in and of yourself. And then he quotes Jeremiah 31, 33. But then he goes on and says this. The law would no longer... The law would no longer be a list of exterior commands. Now he's talking about under the new covenant. Actually, let me go back. Both Ezekiel and Jeremiah saw it as the day when the law would, not, would be not an exterior command, but an interior bent of life. That's really important. The heart of Scripture is understood to be the source and life spring of behavior. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. The new covenant promises not only a new heart, but the power of God to obey and keep the commands of God. The law would no longer be a list under the new covenant. The law would no longer be a list of exterior commands, but would arise from within. It is no longer, quote, this is what you must do, but it is now... This is what I want to do. Behind all of God's commands is one command. To love as He loves. And the new covenant joins us to the love of God by the Spirit who is the driving life force and ability to live such a life. The new covenant goes far beyond the demands of the old which was summed up as love your neighbor as yourself. Under the new covenant, the Spirit coming within the believer pours out the divine love at the center of, of being. Romans 5.5 5 tells us the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This means that the command of Jesus becomes possible. From John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I loved you, that you also love one another, by this will all know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now he's given us the ability to do that. All the prophets, all of the prophets saw prophetically that the new covenant would be a covenant of the Holy Spirit. When he would indwell God's people and from that presence, the heart of the law would be a natural direction, the heart of would go. When speaking of coming to Christ, the evangelist will call people to receive Jesus and let Jesus come into your heart. Although that is true, the New Testament never speaks of salvation in that way. Always the New Testament speaks of being a Christian as one's receiving the Spirit and the Spirit's dwelling within the person. It is through the Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, that Jesus dwells in us. Just a couple little more. The Spirit dynamically connects us. This is important. The Spirit dynamically connects us with the covenant made in history. He is God with us to make real and vital the incredible promises of the new covenant. He joins us to the life of the ascended Jesus and is the enabling power by which we can live His life day by day. The Holy Spirit inducts us into the world of the new covenant called 
heavenly places, which is now our real world. We live and work in this passing phony world, but we are not of it. For by the Spirit, we are living moment by moment in Christ. Our covenant relationship to God hinges on the Holy Spirit's being given to dwell within us. Jesus said that the day of the coming of the Spirit would be the day of believers coming to know, uh, coming to know what union in Christ is. In that day, Jesus said, the day of the Spirit's coming, the believers would know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. And again, we will come to Him and make our home with Him. There is not a more intense phrase to describe our union than you and me and I and you. Your body, mind, and emotions are the home of deity, the Godhead, through the presence of the Spirit. And Smith concludes that paragraph. Stop and let those words sink in. Hold your skin and know that the Spirit dwells in every cell of your body. I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> now, go back and look at verse 10 again. For this is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I'll put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Do you see how that's affected by what I just read? Let me read it again, sorry. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is through the flesh, and again, that's all imagery of the holy of holies and how Jesus uh, could enter in. And, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, verse 22, what are we to do? Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And so, and again, notice the context, verse 24. This isn't just a privatization thing. And let us consider how to stir up one another to this love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So it's not, again, it's, it's, it's motivating in the sense of walking in the, the promises that God has provided to us um, that is fulfilled in Christ and this new covenant that he's, now he's given us the empowerment, the ability to obey him and walk in his truth. All right, let's just wrap. We've got a few minutes. Let's wrap these latter two, uh, two additional ones in verse, uh, verse 12. And the second promise is forgiveness of sins. The first promise that uh, in this chapter, the first promise that he gave 
was the first promise, promise was the Spirit's transforming work. I'll put my laws in your minds, write them on your hearts. The second promise is found in verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Two components of this. He says that, that God will forgive us of our sins. Uh, it's interesting, uh, one commentary that I read brought this out, so uh, no originality here, where he says, I'll be merciful towards their iniquities or their sins. Uh, I will remember their sins no more. This first part where about forgiveness of sins. I thought this was interesting. Uh, this writer said that the word that we have up there translated, uh, at least the ESV, as merciful, that in the Greek, you know, the New Testament was written in, in Greek, uh, is the Greek word hylios. Now, don't worry about remembering that, but it's a root word from another Greek word uh, that is the Greek word halasterion. Now, what's the point of that? The word is derived from a description of the mercy seat. That Greek word merciful in the Greek is derived from, uh, from the word that speaks of the mercy seat. Remember the mercy seat sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant? And that's the word hylios, merciful, that is used there. You remember the mercy seat? Remember the blood of the sacrifice was brought in by the high priest? Talking about the Old Testament, that picture there in the, in, the, uh, on, in the temple or in the tent of the tabernacle of meeting, the high priest would bring in the, the blood of, on the Day of Atonement where he would uh, atone or represent uh, and bring the blood of, of, the, of the lamb, would bring it into that, that place, that holy of holies. Only he could go in there and the high priest, uh, the high priest came into the holy of holies, that inner sanctum where the golden cherubim, have you ever seen a picture of that? You can look that up. Rested on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, this was, in, in a sense, this was God's throne from which he, God looked down upon the broken law. Remember the Ten Commandments? A copy of the tablet of the Ten Commandments were also in that, that Ark of the Covenant. They were in there. Uh, and so uh, they were kept in the Ark as well. And so before him, this high priest would come into that Holy of Holies. The high priest himself was sinful, but he's representing a sinful and wicked people. So he would come in, again, under the Old Testament, and according to God's law, if he would enter into that, that holy of holies because of the holiness of God, uh, he would be struck down immediately. But, but because uh, of his role, he brought the blood of the sacrifice on that day of atonement, which was the blood of the animal shed for the sins of the people. That blood was poured upon the mercy seat, a picture of the blood of Christ, future, Okay, preview of coming attractions. The priest would pour that blood on that mercy seat. So when God looked down and no longer saw the law that was transgressed, but he saw the blood that paid the debt of sin, or under Old Testament, covered the sin debt temporarily. That ultimately Jesus, as we'll see I think in next week, was a better sacrifice who one time offered himself Forever. Unlike the earthly priest that had to go back perpetually every year, Jesus offered himself once and forever, giving that picture there. So you could look at verse 12 
with that word merciful, just bring out that word merciful and its connection and see uh, to these Hebrews who were reading this, they were probably reading Greek, they weren't reading Hebrew because Greek was the trade language of this day and time. Uh, Hebrew was used in the synagogue, but the common language and the common reading uh, was Greek. So when they read this uh, written in Greek, and they came across that Greek word, they immediately caught, I think, because of the intent and the root of the word, that connection of God's, that he will be merciful. They made that, couldn't help but make that connection to the mercy seat of God. That would mean something to them. You see, to a Greek who had no background in Judaism, that wouldn't mean anything. But to a Jew saying, and reading that, that God poured out, God was merciful that you, you could almost read it this way, I will be mercy-seated toward your iniquities. I will be mercy-seated toward your iniquities. Why? Because once and forever, and he'll bring that out um, in the next chapter and uh, about the, and the next two chapters uh, about the sacrifice of Christ. And the second part of that promise is, he said, I will remember your sins no more. How, how do you not remember sin? I mean, is it possible for God to forget? Uh, let me illustrate it this way. Scripture uh, sometimes illustrates things by the language of the marketplace. Let's say you owed a debt to somebody and you haven't paid it. Uh, you ever have a bill? I know like my hospital stays and you're waiting for, see if, make sure the insurance is going to pay everything they're going to pay. <clears throat> but you keep getting those letters from Lakeland and phone calls, you're like, hey, I'm not, you know, it's coming, don't worry about it. And, uh, well, I don't say don't worry about it because they are worried about it. I'm worried about it. But, uh, but as long as you have that debt, uh, they're not going to forget you, <laughs> right? Uh, so the one thing you can count on is that they're going to remember and the man or person you owe will remind you every time you see them. You ever owe something to somebody and you kind of, or somebody owes something to you and every time they see you, they, they kind of avoid you. They don't, but they were all Johnny on the spot when they needed to borrow something and they needed something and now they kind of avoid you like the plague. All right, we won't get into that. Um, but if someone else comes along and pays that debt for you, uh, my insurance company, they came along, they, they paid that insurance uh, from the hospital, then guess what? They stopped calling me. And if I went over there and say, hey, my name's Tim Campbell, who? They don't remember me. Why? Because the debt is gone. God remembers it no more. The debt has been, uh, the debt has been paid in full. And so when God's full justice in Christ by the blood of Christ has been met, he remembers our sins no more. So you forget your you forget it because God has forgotten it in the blood of Christ. And the third promise, and you see this even in what we read earlier about the role of the Spirit, the third promise is in verse 10 and 11, and I kind of went backwards a little bit, verse 10 and 11, where he says, and I will be their God. The latter part of verse 11, um, or actually verse 10, uh, I will put their laws, put my laws into their minds, write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God will be in relationship to us. God will be in permanent fellowship to us. And just by way of summary, 
of this chapter is verse 13. He kind of brings it to a summary in verse 13 when he says, In speaking of a new covenant, I don't know how it gets any plainer than this. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. It's obsolete in that sense, right? It's no longer valid. Some things I can't even get software that I use because some things aren't usable because it's obsolete. The law, he says, it says in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. He's talking to people that are looking back nostalgically at the law and Judaism and all that. And, they, and he says, guys... It's Apple 10.5. God's on Apple 29.5, you know? I mean, it's obsolete. It's really obsolete. It's of no use. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old, he said, is ready to vanish away. Now, I'm not sure about the timing or whether he, he's writing somewhat. Uh, well, I know he's writing on the Spirit prophetically, but this was written probably within four Three, four years when seven before 70 AD, this was maybe written around 66, 67, the year 66, 67. In 70, the year 70, something catastrophic happened. And uh, Rome came in and destroyed Jerusalem. The temple was destroyed, gone. So when he says, not only is it growing old, but it's ready to vanish away, all those trappings and the visible temple, they're like, wait a minute. You want me to go backwards, but I can see the temple and all the massive regalia and everything that my entire culture and religion, there it is. Well, it's getting ready to, not only has it vanished away spiritually, but it is literally going to vanish away because after 70 AD, it was, and, uh, and so the promise is in verse, in this passage, of God promising, promising us relationship in the superiority of the new covenant, why would you want to go back to that which is obsolete and inferior? Remember what he's doing. Remember what he's doing. He's writing to people who are discouraged. He's writing to people that are perhaps beaten down a little bit by persecution, rejection. And... Uh, you know, just like some of us, sometimes you're just ready to just ready to give up. You're just ready to throw in the towel. Think, is this worth it? But he says, oh, yes. It's more than worth it. It's more than worth it. Better Jesus. <laughs> better Jesus. He's better than Moses. He's better than any Levitical priest. He's better than uh, the angels. He's better than any prophet. He's better than the old. He brought in the, the new covenant, which is far superior than the old. 